Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, this morning we are continuing the sermon series that we've been in for a number of weeks now called Winning. Seven Messages on Overcoming, and in this series, we are walking through what are known as the seven letters to the seven churches found in the book of Revelation. Find those in Revelation chapters two and three, and in each of the letters, Jesus shows clearly that he knows the particular details and the circumstance that each church finds themselves in. And I think as we've been walking through this, I've found, and I hope you've found, that their circumstance is not always that different from our own. And in each message, Jesus is trying to give them a message that will allow them to overcome, overcome their circumstance, overcome their temptation, whatever it is, and he's gearing the message in order to help them ultimately win. And so in some cases, he gives encouragement because they just need a good slap on the back and attaboy to keep them motivated and moving forward. In other cases, he gives a very stern rebuke and a pretty harsh warning because that's what's needed sometimes to get us back on track, isn't it? And so Jesus is really help, seeking to help them to overcome, and for those who overcome, Jesus says there are these incredible promises that flow from the generous riches of God's blessing for you. And so we continue into the sixth of the seven letters today. And this week, I was actually working on our lawn tractor, which kind of seems like a second job at times just to keep it running and so that I can cut the grass. But I had to get up under there, and I was trying to get this bolt undone, which was stuck. And so I had in my head that little rhyme to try to make sure I was turning it the right direction. You know the one? Yeah, there you go. Righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. That's exactly right. And so it's such a helpful little mnemonic device. To if you didn't know about it, now you know. Anytime you know, righty makes it tight, lefty loosey. And so I was following that, and it's like that all the time, except when it's not. And I remember the first time that it was not. I was changing the pedals on a bike, and I started with the right pedal, and everything went as expected. It was easy, no big deal. And then I went to the left pedal, and I was cranking on this thing with that little device in my head, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, lefty. And so I was turning and cranking the whole time, not realizing that the left pedal is a left-handed thread because of the way the pedal turns when you actually ride the bike. And so the whole time, I thought I was doing exactly what I was supposed to, but I was only making it tighter and tighter and tighter. And of course, Google corrected me because Google is good for that a lot of the time. And I realized, oh, it's a left-handed thread. And so I reversed not just my expectations, I reversed the direction that I was actually turning, and it unlocked everything, and I was able to move forward and change the pedals. And in the letter that we're looking at today... Jesus does a similar thing. He reverses all sorts of values and flip-flops expectations to unlock everything so this church and so we can overcome. 
And so let's jump into this letter from Revelation chapter 3. If you'd like, you can follow along on the screen, but let's listen for Jesus' word for us this morning. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into Jesus' words. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this celebration of Pentecost, the reminder of your presence, your spirit dwelling within us in power. Thank you for the chance to come to this communion table. Thank you for your word that speaks into our lives. May we hear your message, receive it, and allow us to overcome. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So obviously this is the message to the church in Philadelphia, and because we all know that Philadelphia, it's the city of brotherly love, right? And we're not talking about this was not written to the Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, it was written to the Philadelphia in what is now central Turkey. And it was founded in about 150 BC by the then king of Pergamum, Attalus II. And he loved his brother so much that he earned the nickname Philadelphus, brother, brotherly love. And so he founded this city as a way to expand Greek influence, Greek culture, Greek language, and because of it, it was his city, it was named after him and became Philadelphia. It was uh, not known for their love, it was known for his love of brother, but it was known for earthquakes. Apparently in this region, there were many earthquakes in AD 17. There was a huge earthquake in this area, and there was damage in all sorts of cities. But the crazy part for Philadelphia was the aftershocks continued for years, at times daily. And so it continued to wreak havoc on the city, and there were still people that were trying to live there. And so it was like they would get up, and they'd go to work, and then they'd repair the city, go to sleep, repair, work. And it was this constant cycle. At times, things collapsing still, and they had to run for their lives. And so this was Philadelphia. Seventy-five years later, after that earthquake, Jesus gives this message to this church in this city identifying himself as holy and true, this, this kind of quick way of claiming that identity, uh, that he is, in fact, one with God, the only one who is holy and true. And then he adds this kind of unique phrase. He says, the one who holds the key of David. 
And I'm wondering, has anyone ever entrusted you with the keys? You remember the first time your parents entrusted you with the keys to the car? Or the, maybe remember when someone gave you the keys to their house and they weren't going to be there and I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm 12. <laughs> I was taking care of their dogs while they were out of town. But man, I could have done anything I wanted in their house. Jesus is saying, I am the one who holds the key of David. And this is a reference, like so many images and allusions in the book of Revelation, it's a, it's a reference back to the Old Testament, specifically to a story found in Isaiah chapter 22. And in this chapter, we find a steward of the kingdom of Judah. In other words, a guy who was second in command. He was really responsible for the daily protection and execution of the things that necessary for the kingdom. He was responsible for deciding who would have access to the kingdom, who would have access to the palace, and ultimately to the king. Well, the problem is the steward was kind of a bad guy. And God is making this promise through the prophet Isaiah that he's going to get rid of him. He's going to get rid of him and he's going to put another guy named Eliakim in his place. And actually in Isaiah 22, 22, it says this, I will place on his, Eliakim's shoulder, the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Sounds a little familiar to what we just read in Revelation, doesn't it? And God was saying that he was going to give the keys to the kingdom of Judah, to the house of David, to this new steward, Eliakim, so that if he blocks someone from coming into the kingdom, if he blocks someone from coming into the palace, if he blocks someone from coming to the king, if he blocks them from participation in the life of the kingdom, nobody can stop it. He's got that kind of authority. And Jesus is claiming the same kind of authority to this church. He's saying, I decide who to let in and who will be shut out. Specifically in verse 8, he said to the church, he said, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So what is he talking about? What's up with this door imagery? And I think we find that answer if we, if we look at the context of the whole message, because throughout the message, Jesus is putting the church in Philadelphia in contrast to what Jesus calls, once again, the synagogue of Satan. We've heard this language from one of the earlier messages in our series. But in this passage, we see Jesus highlighting the reality of the conflict in the first century between the synagogue, the Jews of the synagogue, and Christianity. See, the Christians, those first Christians, identified themselves as growing out of the, the Jewish faith. They were an extension of it, believing with confidence that they were worshiping the Jewish Messiah believing that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the promises that God had been making throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, of course, not everybody believed that. And so those Jews in the synagogue who didn't believe that Jesus was the fulfillment, that he was the Messiah, they got upset. It grew. At times, it grew to a point of violence against the Christians. At other times, it was a matter of shunning of being forced out of the synagogue, no longer allowed to participate in the life of the synagogue. And so these Christians in Philadelphia, they may have found themselves being kicked out of the synagogue. And just try to imagine it for a minute. Try to imagine, maybe it's this church, maybe you, maybe you didn't grow up in a church, but try to imagine that you had grown up in a church, this church perhaps. And after years and years of being rooted here, of relationships, 
of milestones and celebrations that suddenly you're kicked out. You can't come back. You can't be a part of worship. You can't be a part of anything that has to do with the life of the church. Imagine after five years, 10, 30, 50 years, suddenly no longer allowed access. And this may have been the very experience of these people in the church in Philadelphia, kicked out of all these things that had been valuable. And Jesus is saying to them, see, I've put an open door before you that no one can shut. I know they've shut you out. I know you want to get back in. I know it hurts you. I know that you are are heartbroken. It's painful to be cut off from the people that you've cared about, that you've been a part of for so long. It's painful to be cut off from those practices of your faith that have been so foundational and meaningful for your life. I know that they've shut you out, but I've put a door in front of you, and it's wide open, and no one can shut it. He's putting this door, this invitation to come into the kingdom, to have access to the king. You can come in and be with me, Jesus is saying. And so what qualifies them to go through the door? Did you see it? What gives them this access, this authorization to go through the door? If we see it in the middle of this message, Jesus gives the qualification, it's their weakness that qualifies them, which is kind of weird. What? Wait, what? That doesn't really make sense. I mean, if we think about it, if we're trying to put our best qualifications forward, if you're trying to sell yourself to anyone for any reason, if you're putting out a resume or you're in an interview, do you lead with your weakness? No. That's ridiculous. I mean, we're taught that when they ask you what your strengths are, lay them all out there boldly. And when they ask you what your weaknesses are, well, you just respond, you know, man, I'm just such a perfectionist. I can't stop working so hard. (laughs) It's just such a weakness. I'm so so loyal. I'm overcommitted to the organization. We're, We're taught to reframe it as if even our weaknesses are strengths because we value strength. But Jesus is saying, no, I know. I know you have little strength. You are weak. You have nothing to show for yourselves. And this is in such stark contrast to the message we heard last week when Jesus was talking to the church in Sardis that had this incredible reputation for being alive. Yes, you've got strength. Yes, you've got something to show for yourselves. Yes, you've got so much to flex. And yet, he calls them dead. To this church, he's saying, yeah, I I know you have, you don't have that reputation. You have little strength. You're weak. But that's exactly where they needed to be. It's actually what qualifies them to be able to walk through the open door, and it's what qualifies us as well. I know we often think of our lives and, and we think about, okay, if I'm going to get through that door, man, I've got to get myself right. I've got to live the right way. And at the end of the day, if I'm good enough, then I can get through that door, if that's the door to heaven, the door to the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying so clearly in this message, that's not how life works. I know that that's the, what the, the world says. That's what their values are, but I'm flipping those upside down. The door is open only because I have opened it. 
It's not open because of your strength, but because of your weakness. It's not open because of your heritage, but because of your faith. It's not open because you've figured out somehow to become perfect. It's about your confession of your imperfection. It's not about getting rid of all your doubts and all of your fears, but about honestly owning them. At one point, a father comes to Jesus during his ministry, and his son has been possessed by a demon since, since the earliest days of his life. And frequently this demon causes the boy to go into convulsions and tries to throw him into water or, or fire to, to kill him. And the father is desperate, and so he comes to Jesus because the disciples haven't been able to cast him out and says, you know, help me. If, if you can, will you set my son free? And Jesus is like, wait, if I can? What are you talking about? Everything is possible for him who believes, Jesus says. And the, the father's immediate response was, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. In other words, I believe and I doubt. I believe and I'm struggling. I believe and I can't seem to get out of my own head because I don't really understand how this can work. And so how does Jesus respond to the Father? Well, when you figure it out, then come back. I'll do the healing then. No. He heals the boy. He casts out the demon before the Father had overcome the doubt. Because it's not about getting rid of our doubt, getting rid of our weakness, and getting rid of our brokenness. It's about the fact that Jesus has planted a door right in front of you, and it's wide open. No one's opinion of you can shut that door. No pressure or input or perspective from, from inside of your life or from the outside world that says you have to be this or that in order to be qualified. None of those voices matter. Because Jesus is the one who can open or close the door, and the door is wide open because Jesus is the door. In John chapter 10, Jesus said this. He said, I am the gate, or I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. You want to come into the kingdom of God. You want to come into a relationship with God. You want to come into a place of security, of peace, of hope, of joy. Then you come through me, Jesus says, because I am the door, and that door is wide open open, it is open, and it can never be closed because I have opened it with my life and my death and my resurrection. You can't undo the death of Jesus. It happened. You can't undo the resurrection of Jesus. It has happened. And so if you can't undo those things, then you cannot shut the door. It is wide open because of what he's done. And so you're weak. I am weak. Well, Jesus took weakness on himself on that cross, and he rose up to give strength. You are broken. Jesus' body was broken and his soul crushed on that cross, and he rose up to give strength and wholeness. You're afraid Jesus didn't want to die that excruciating death on the cross, and yet he did, and he rose up to give victory over all those things that hold us captive. You're doubting? Jesus took on himself. He took on the doubt of the crowds and even his own disciples to the point of death on a cross to rise up to give reassurance that he is the truth and the life. You're ashamed of what you've done, where you've been, of how you've lived? Jesus took 
your sin and your imperfection and your failure and your shame upon himself on that cross and he rose up his perfection, his righteousness, freedom from guilt and an assurance that you are loved by God. This is the great reversal, the flip-flop that is grace. So all that's left for us is to embrace our inadequacy and know that in Jesus the door is open. Paul actually said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so if you come with a sense of your weakness, your brokenness, your frailty, your doubt, your fear, your inability to conquer sin in your life, then you're in the right spot. You're ready to receive what is truly grace, the gift of a door open before you, not one that you've been able to force open by yourself, but one that Jesus has opened and can never be shut. So this door is this invitation, Jesus is saying, to enter into the kingdom, to have access to the kingdom of self, but it's also an an open door to an opportunity to be a part of what the king is doing. You know, we use the same kind of language in our lives. If, you, if you've had an unexpected opportunity come up, we say, oh, a door is opened, right? A new job opportunity. The door opened for me. I didn't see it coming, and, but it happened. Well, and that's the same kind of idea that this door is talking about. There's an opportunity here to be a part of what the king is doing. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 16. He said, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Paul's talking about a door that's open for ministry, a door to make a difference in people's lives, a door to invite others into this kingdom, a door that allows him to love and serve people who don't know that it's not about being strong in themselves. It's not about their perfection, but it's about their weakness and their confession. It's an invitation to expand the kingdom of God. See, Philadelphia had been planted to expand the reach and influence of of Greek language and culture. And to the same church in this city, Jesus is saying, no, no, I've got a different mission for you. It's not about expanding the Greek kingdom. It's about expanding the kingdom of God that has a whole host of values that are totally upside down from the values of this world from what the world sees as wise and strong and wonderful. And there's a door open for you if you're in Christ because there are people in your life who are struggling. And they may seem like they have it all together because they're flexing their strength. They may seem like they have it all together because they're achieving, because they seem to be getting ahead. They may seem like they have their whole life put together. But the reality is, Behind all of that often is this anxiety, this stress, this, this kind of internal drive to go, okay, I've got to make life work. I've got to get to this place in order to have this security. I've got to do this in order to protect myself, in order to get ahead. If I'm going to make it through this world, this life, then I've got to be the best on top, whatever it is. And there is freedom in this reversal, this flip-flop for folks to hear finally, it's not about you figuring it all out on your own. It's about embracing your weakness so that the strength of Jesus can hold you up. 
And you can have freedom there. See, and this is part of what it means to actually be the church, is to continue what Jesus had started. Jesus came not to, to save those who were healthy and strong in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, he makes it very clear. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Jesus came to, to save those who are sick, whose lives are a mess, and they know it. And he has given us that same message of hope to go out to a world that is broken and hurting, that doesn't have it all put together with a message of hope. And we're here on Pentecost weekend, and we remember that first time when the the Holy Spirit didn't just come on, but came within the followers of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 2, grabbing on to what was being foretold in Joel that we read earlier, we're told that, that the, the disciples were to go and wait until they received power from on high. This was the Holy Spirit coming within them so that they could go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth until the door opens for them. And, and we're here on Pentecost remembering that we are here to receive that same Holy Spirit. It wasn't their power that they went and witnessed in. It was the power of Jesus. It was about their weakness so his power could be clear. And the same is for us. And the reality is, this door remains wide open to enter the kingdom, but also the opportunity to expand it into a hurting world. Jesus offers another reversal in his promises that he makes. Actually, a number of reversals. Over and over in the the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel had had been making these promises to the people of God. They They were saying, Hey, the Gentiles, at some point, all the non-Jewish people are going to come and they're going to bow down before you. They're going to recognize that God has chosen you, that you are his loved and cared, the people that he cares for. But here, Jesus is grabbing onto that same imagery, but once again, reversing the expectation. Because he says it's not the Gentiles who will come and bow down. He says it's actually the Jews who are part of the synagogue of Satan. It's those who claim to be God's people simply because of heritage and biology and because of their effort and strength to be perfect and keep the law. These are the people that will come and fall down at the feet of the church of Philadelphia and acknowledge that Jesus has loved them. That it's those who have faith, not those who have strength, are the true people of God. Those who have kept his word have not denied the name of Jesus that are the true Israel. And for us, I think there's an incredible promise in that. Because to, to be a follower of Jesus boldly can often bring on hostility in our lives. There's people around us perhaps that have been hostile to you that have shut you out. And Jesus is saying that someday they're going to realize that, no, I have really loved you. That I have sustained you. I have taken care of you. That your faith has not been misplaced. It may seem like foolishness to them. Your faith is foolishness. Come on, it is foolishness to lift up weakness in a world that celebrates strength. It's foolishness to confess sin in a world that denies that sin even exists. It's foolishness to, to say that faith is our basis of value and worth in a world that lifts up beauty and money and achievement as that source of confidence and identity. But Jesus is saying that someday the world around you, those who have been hostile to you, they're going to realize, no, your faith was not foolishness. That this is the great reversal and flip-flop. That Jesus, 
promising to take care of them in their weakness, take care of you in your weakness, is faithful and true. And he promises to take care of them through the hour of trial that's coming for the world. That might even be the hour that we're living in now. This time period where the world is being tested to figure out what are we leaning on for our qualification and our standing before God to enter through that door or not. What values are we upholding? The values of the world or the values of God's kingdom? And the temptation, I believe, is the same for us as it was for them. Because the temptation for us is always to flip this back, right? God is flipping the values of the world, and it's always our temptation to flip it back, to make it about our strength and about our perfection and about our goodness. I mean, many people come to faith in Jesus with a real gratitude of going, thank you, Jesus, for dealing with my past, for forgiving me of all that stuff, but I got it from here. I'll show you I'm good enough. I'm worthy of your forgiveness now, only to find that we can't do it that it doesn't hold up, and yet that temptation is there. I think this temptation rears its head because we kind of buck the idea of grace. I don't know about you, but, but grace, this idea of being given what we don't deserve in a good way, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, just imagine this. You, work, you walk into work, and you've consistently been missing deadlines you haven't been getting it done the way that you know you're supposed to be. You walk into your boss's office and your boss says, I got a bonus for you. Wait, what? Or you, you haven't turned in your homework for weeks and your teacher says, you know what? I'm going to give you an A. Right, some of us might be like, woohoo, that's awesome. Others of us, I think, if we're honest about it, we kind of look at that a little skeptically. And we start thinking, what are they up to? That boss is going to be rolling something out next week, and I, I'm sure I don't want anything to do with it. And he's just buttering me up. Because this grace that we know we didn't earn or we didn't merit, I think if we're honest about it, we don't really want it. Because it feels like it's out of our control. Right? We want to be recognized for what we've done. We want to get paid more for what we've already achieved. Not, not as some act of unmerited grace, I mean, grace, grace is illogical. Grace, grace is a left-handed thread. Grace is a left-handed thread because we want to be recognized for how great we are in and of ourselves, but what makes you great is not your perfection or your achievement, but that God has uniquely and wonderfully made you, that he loves you, that even though you are weak, that you fail, that you struggle, that you doubt, that you're afraid, that you're sinful, that you're ashamed, that all of these things that God loves you even more than you could possibly imagine. It's why he sent Jesus, so he can bless you more than you ever earned or merited. It's a left-handed thread. But we keep trying to crank it to the right and stand on our own strength. And Jesus is saying, if you, get, if you can overcome this temptation to flip it back, if you can overcome this temptation to, to let go of your little strength in favor of the strength of the world, if you can let go of the temptation to give up on total dependence on Jesus to be allowed into his kingdom, if you can overcome the temptation to try by your own power to be something great and worthwhile, then there are promises and blessings for you. Two in particular, as we come to the end. First, as Jesus says, I will, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. If we remember, Philadelphia is a city of earthquakes. And so, 
this is, they've been living in this constant rhythm of, of working, striving to repair, to build up, to try to regain the strength and the security to know that, hey, it, it's not going to, their, their world, their livelihood isn't going to come crashing down again. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you pillars, this image of strength, of security, of power, but not, it's not about your city. I'm going to make you pillars in the temple of God and not a physical temple, but this, this incredible spiritual temple that even though you're striving to try to live on your own strength and make life happen and struggle, and I know you feel weak and insignificant and overlooked, I will make you strong and secure in the presence of God forever. So just walk through the door. Embrace your weakness and come into the presence of God. And the second promise is this, he says, I'll write the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name on you. Most of you have probably seen the movie, The Toy Story, and if you haven't, you, you probably should because it's like 25 years old at this point, so, you know, and it's amazing. It was one of the first Disney movies I purchased when I went, you know, off to college on my own. And it's the story of Woody, who's a cowboy doll, and Andy, the little boy that owns him, and, and Woody loves being, being Andy's toy and loves being loved by Andy and loves loving Andy back. And things get complicated when a space toy enters in. But the reminder throughout the whole movie and the whole series is actually on the bottom of Woody's boot. Because on the bottom of Woody's boot is written the word Andy. And if he would just simply look underneath his boot, it was a constant reminder of whose he was, of who valued him, of who loved him, that he can love other people as well, but at the end of the day, he is Andy's, and that's what makes life worth living. And Jesus is saying, if you can just embrace the weakness and your brokenness, I'm going to write the name of God on your soul, that all you have to do is look and remember whose you are, loved Loved by God more than you could possibly imagine, not because you proved worthy of it, but because Jesus has opened a door and invited you to walk through. Remember whose you are, no matter how weak you may feel, you are his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these messages to the church, this message to us, the hope that we find that is for us that Jesus, you've opened that door that we can walk through. You've given us an identity in you. You've given us purpose, invited us into your kingdom and into your presence, not because we are good enough, but because of your goodness for us. In Jesus' name, amen.